She is. She has three degrees. One in nuclear power station control process. What? <laughs> So you're a nuclear physicist. Not physicist, that's a uh, control. It's a systems engineer. Yeah, but that's like on the level. <laughs> I mean, I, I you mean, know I, about I, unstable I, isotopes. I, I used to be very intelligent. <laughs> until, 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 that doesn't speak well of you. And all of a sudden you get, in, you get involved with oh. art and everything goes downhill from there. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. <laughs> no, actually, I have another education too. And what's the other degree fashion. in? It's actually in fashion. 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 So you're. That's an odd mix. Yeah, it, it is. is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At least when you're controlling nuclear um, nuclear yeah. programs, you can look <laughs> good doing it. <laughs> I get it. That's good. I like that. All right. Well, welcome to Suggested Donation. I'm Edward Minoff. I'm Tony Serenai. And we're here with George O'Hanlon who is the founder and president of Natural Pigments. Thank you. <laughs> Good to have you here. And Jay Braun, as always, on the wheels of steel. <laughs> Good. Hair is getting long. I like the look. It looks. I'm turning into an artist. Um, you are turning into an artist. So, like so we're recording at the Grand Central Academy because George O'Hanlon is doing a lecture series or series of lectures on best practices and why all of our paintings are going to fall apart. And <laughs> well, how to not get them to fall apart. Yeah, right. yeah that's, that's the purpose. <laughs> and but been, of course, we have to explain how they are falling apart first. first. And you were telling me all sorts of ways. And it, it, in the beginning, I was almost like, that's it, I'm done. I don't want yeah. to do this anymore. It's too scary. It's kind yeah. of opening a can of worms. I'm sure a lot of people yeah. don't want to know <laughs> what. Just set it with hairspray or something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Actually, hairspray is surprisingly archival. No. <laughs> Well, you, we, were, we were joking because uh, uh, after we do these uh, these workshops, that that everybody's traumatized, and then we have to send them to therapy afterwards because they think their paintings are all falling apart before them. So it gets a little scary. Yeah. Uh, I know um, one of the things, and I'd like to uh, dub this episode the full-on geek out episode because we are about <laughs> to geek out on materials. Um, when I when I knew I was going to take this, uh, your workshop here, I was just sitting, just sort of rubbing my hands together, waiting to ask you all sorts of Curling questions. your mustache. Curling my mustache and mm. all the information I'm going to get from you <laughs> and just pick your brain. One of the things, one of the, well, not one of the first, one of the first things you mentioned is just like canvas. Mm -hmm. No bueno. Yeah. Canvas is, is bad. How can you say that? All the great Everybody has always been painting on canvas. So why? Canvas. Why do they paint on canvas and why is it a nightmare? Well, they, they painted on canvas and when you, you look at the history of canvas, which really began, let's say, in the late, uh, 15, uh, late 16th, or let's say in the 16th century, and um, it was really convenience. And so canvas is very easy to work with in terms of you paint a very large painting, you roll it up and ship it off. So it doesn't mean that the artist then, because many of the paintings were monumental paintings. So, so then they avoid having to travel to a foreign uh, city and spending years there right. painting. They can just do it right in their studio and everything is done. And then pull it off the stretcher and bars. Pull it off and stretcher bars and ship it and uh, then mount it on some wall. Uh, so they're lazy. They're traveling. It has it has to do with the fact it, it was a convenience factor, and, a lot, and well, most, that would have been a big horse and carriage, right, yeah. <laughs> for, for a Veronese. Yes. <laughs> so there was there was that convenience, and that's really what it, it comes down to: a lot of convenience factor involved, and then 
And of course, gradually the paintings degrade. But a lot of those paintings still survive. I mean, you know, 500 years later, a lot of those paintings are with us. They may have degraded, but you know, I mean, Rubens was painting on canvas and his mm -hmm. paintings for the most part seem like they're in pretty good shape compared to a lot of newer paintings. It's not without a lot of care and a lot of conservation work. Restoration work going on and so they, all of the, there's not a can, there's hardly a canvas painting out there today that hasn't been relined, and so it has, it has been remounted because the canvas is just simply given up. And is that just the canvas itself, like it rots? Is it that things eat it? What? Well, like we pointed, like we were talking about in the workshop, the uh, the cellulose fibers are degrading through oxidation. They're just exposed to the atmosphere, and of course. They lose their strengths, and in fact, uh, it has been noted that uh, a, a linen canvas even loses 50% of its strength within the first 10 years. Wow. So uh, they're all losing strength. They're all going to deteriorate. So it is the weakest form of substrate that we have. <laughs> so what do you recommend then? What, what, what would be the thing? What we've, yeah, what we found is that, uh, or what conservation scientists have found is that a painting, and that was the key thing that we first pointed out in the workshop was the, uh, a painting, uh, let's say we take two paintings, we execute them equally the same, use the same materials. We put one on canvas and one on a rigid support. And the one on rigid support will outlast in its in, in closer to its original condition much more than the canvas painting. So, uh, and that has to do with the fact, not only because the canvas is deteriorating, but the canvas is expanding, contracting all the time. With the humidity, with it changes humidity, expands. And then yes. And of course, humidity cycles hourly, daily, weekly, and so forth. And as it's doing that, it's expanding, contracting the paint film which cannot expand and contract in the same, in unison with the canvas. Eventually, the paint layer gives up and starts cracking. That's now, the, the simple you, explanation. When you mention uh, just uh, rigid support, uh, for people who don't exactly know what that means, t uh, uh, talk about the different types of rigid support and what you think would be sort of good, better, best. Well, the rigid supports, of course, some of the, the oldest rigid support is, is a panel of wood. And the wood panels, uh, those, although they still expand and contract because it is, it is wood, and, um, and so well, they, they warp. They do warp, uh -huh, and that's because they are, the wood is mechanically failing too. Right. Uh, it is too built of cellulose fibers, but the, the structure is much different from that of canvas. And as a result, it, uh, it, but it is rigid. It, is, it, does, it doesn't expand and contract uh, like to the same degree uh, as canvas, and so uh, it provides a more rigid support. Of course, there are many other supports used throughout history. Stone has been a support for painting. Um, you showed an example of a, a, a painting done on marble. Yeah, and it was yeah, there surprisingly was, it was in good shape. Very good shape. It was a 19th century, or excuse me, 18th century painting, and uh, oil painting on marble, and it's in very good condition. I've heard copper is copper is excellent. Because we're, it's, it's we're a gonna metal. Get to that. We're going to get to that. All right. And <laughs> so, dye bond is the thing that a lot of people are talking about. Now. It's it's uh, yeah, dye bond, which is the trade name for a, a whole group of aluminum composite materials that are just veneers of aluminum on polyethylene cores. So those are excellent materials to paint on because they're very rigid. And guess what? They don't respond to moisture. Mm. So the, basically, the thing you're looking for is something that's just not going. It's going to be totally static, like 
totally what inert and not change, not move, not warp, nothing, so that the paint has a stable surface and nothing will change underneath the paint. Right, that's basically it. And of course, nothing, there is no ideal support that is gonna last throughout all time, but there are, uh, there are some that are better than others. And uh, metal is actually a wonderful support because it has the lowest responsiveness to hum changes in humidity, which is what causes the expansion contraction of all these materials, which then leads to the failure of the paint film. So if so, you're gonna send a painting to outer space, you're gonna do it on copper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> copper or aluminum, there's all these metals. And these are, copper of course has a very good history because it's, you know, it's been around for about 500 years. It's been a painting support for oil paintings. So, uh, and uh, the copper paintings that we have today from long ago are in very good condition. So that's a, that's a good choice. And, uh, but now today we have many more uh, choices available to us. And why artists aren't using these modern materials, I have no idea. <laughs> well, what's funny is that um, when we were talking in the workshop about all the, not only different supports, the, the idea of how to make your paint, I mean, you are just a wealth of knowledge in every aspect of not only paint making, paint, paint ma uh, making a painting from scratch. How did you get into that whole world, that interest, that all the way from knowing the science behind what makes and what makes a painting fail or succeed, to manufacturing a line of paint that is traditional. How did you get into that? Well, I my my uh, background is in painting, fine arts, and uh, and I had I've always had an interest in materials, but uh, uh, I was like everybody else out there, uh, painting away without you know, without being, uh, have any information, there was very little information about all of these, the material science uh, of painting. And um, I actually started to uh, do egg temper painting, and there you have a more intimate familiarity with your paint materials. You're mixing paint, you're uh, working with pigments, you become aware of particle sizes and all these different aspects of paint. And as I started working with that, I, um, uh, in my, I have a general interest in science anyway, and uh, as a result, we, I started to work with these materials gradually in more time, and uh, we, because the, there were a lack of these kinds of materials here in the United States, uh, I, start, I actually started importing or buying materials from abroad and bringing them to the States. Was this that just for, for your, yourself? Yeah, for, for myself originally, use. yeah. And then, and then eventually I found, well, you know, other artists needed these, these products too. So you became the so mule. The mule. I, I was you were a and dealer. That's, that's actually very, very literal too, because <laughs> uh, we would go to, uh, let's say, Russia, and I would get bags of different colored powders. Oh wow! And, Good. I'm sure know, they loved they, you. And they loved this, and this is I'm sure uh, there's a big well, the blue file comes on from you. Afghanistan, right? The yeah, lapis yeah, yeah. But a lot, a lot of the uh, minerals we originally bought were in Russia because I have, uh, I have friends who are mineralogists there. And so uh, we would get minerals there, would bring them mm -hmm. back and we'd carry them in suitcases. And, yeah. Hold on, and, quotes, um, <laughs> mineralogists, is that what they're calling them yeah, these that's days? What, that's what they are. <laughs> and so, and of course we have very funny stories, Walk going through, uh, uh, actually leaving the, Russia was, uh, was very interesting because Often they wanted to try out these minerals to make sure that they weren't drugs. God no! They would literally <laughs> taste them. You know, you're cobalt like, you might blue. Not you're like, yeah. yeah, you might not want to do mercuric that. sulfide. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
but that led into obviously that that led into more and more um, more and more interest in what was going on and sharing these with other artists. And then eventually, I actually started to get calls from museums and conservation scientists because they're studying these minerals, not for using as an in painting. Well, for how did they how did they find out about you? Well, Is we started. I mean, internet, we started. We well, no, it was it was during the during internet, the yeah, during the internet, and we started advertising the fact that we had these pigments, and uh, so we started getting calls, and and uh, as a result, we I ended up in conservation labs all over the country, <laughs> and uh, wow. and we would visit these, and we would have discussions, and uh, I've I'd been dealing with these things for quite a number of years, and I knew the sources everywhere uh, on this, and so as a result, we. Um, I started working with these conservation scientists and, and became more sharing. Right. And they're, they're all very, uh, very open about the information. So you're and picking their brains I'm while picking they're their brains. picking your pockets for your pigments. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I've noticed what, when you get to that level of um, a person in a company, the, the engineer of something, I've made cold calls to like Philips lights or something like that. And I got my way to one of the engineers and they wanted, they'd love to talk about what they're doing to the point where I'm getting an amazing amount of information. And then I'm like, I kind of got to go. And they're like, no, 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 no. Hold on. Yeah, let me yeah, yeah, yeah. tell you about this other thing. So I, I'll, well, I'll listen. Nobody cares about CRI more than you do. I, and they do. Because like of, the, yeah. the, the two, it's like kindred spirits meeting. You guys are running against across a grassy field. Yeah, yeah, really, I see them. We're running towards each other, but the same thing with artist material. Yeah. I'm yeah. Assuming it is exactly you, the same thing. Yeah. When you, when you come across somebody who's just passionate, they dedicated their life to this and all of a sudden there's some person asking them all these questions they're like you really want to know about me yeah, <laughs> I love yeah, it yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of these scientists are like that they, they love talking shop and uh, and we would go to these places and, and visit them. and Because I'm uh, sure during a just... dinner conversation, when they start talking about this, everybody's eyes just start oh, glazing yeah. My over. My drink's empty. i got to go to the yeah, bar. Gotta, I'll, I'll see you right later. Back. Oh, would you look at the time? i got to go. Yeah, yeah. Unless they can find an artist. <laughs> well, yeah, in that case. Or certain kinds of artists. So, yeah. so you're running around to these uh, doing that, but then you started this company. So mm -hmm. are you taking the information, making your product better? Or... Um, you know, how does that work? Like, you're, you're, are you spending more time running around trying to figure out uh, a conservationist thing? Or are you, you know, spending more time making making artists' products? Well, our, the time would be divided. I think I spend um, uh, probably a third of my time actually doing research, and it's continual. Wow. It's never ending. Um, another third of the time is spent obviously managing company and. And another third of the time is spent in actually working with the materials. So it's not just reading about them, but it's, it's very important. You have to work with the materials. We're, we're doing our own tests. We, we actually built two labs inside of our facility. And, um, and we work with uh, you know, doing different things like drawdowns and paint uh, chips and studies. What's uh, a drawdown? Yeah, that's a good <laughs> question. Um, so basically, we just take you, you, it's a common thing in the paint industry. So you have a card, usually a paper card, and then you take a certain amount of paint and you you'd squeegee it kind mm -hmm. of in, a, and you then look at the opacity, relative opacity of the paint, and and so looking at all these things and also you know working with different raw materials and seeing how these perform, then you get some idea of what's really going on. And, and uh, I think the biggest kind of aha moment for me was. Um, 
Working with natural minerals, the particle size range varies tremendously, uh, which is more like the types of pigments that the old masters were working with. But the modern pigments of the particle size range is quite narrow. So they're gr grinding the pigments down to a consistent size as opposed to in the past when they were an inconsistent size? They're either grinding them or because they're, they're, they're made from synthesized chemicals, oh. so they result in smaller particles. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the natural outcome of the industry. But when I was working with the larger size, larger heterogeneous particles, sizes, and shapes, and I saw that the paint behaved very differently. And this has also been noted by uh, uh, some conservation uh, research showing that it might have been possible that some of the effects we see in 17th century paintings were created simply because the particle size was different. And the particle size creates more transparency or translucency? It or? can. The larger particles are going to be more transparent, right. but uh, it's, it's the major effect comes in the variety of the particle size from it comes in the behavior of the paint. And which is what you were talking about earlier when you started to hand grind your own paints. Mm -hmm. um, you noticed that the behavior was completely different from a commercial paint. That it doesn't sink in, that it doesn't change. You put it down and it just, it's there. Yeah, part of those effects are, are the result of the particle size. And, but the, the overall handling property becomes quite different. And that's the moment that I, th I, you know, especially like an oil paint, as an example, that was when, when it occurred to me that things were very different so in it's former the centuries. particle size, not necessarily the uh, not necessarily the additives that are added to uh, the additives do affect the uh, the behavior of the paint too quite a bit. So, so there are a bunch of different factors. There's many different factors, but the particle size is a major factor. And then as soon as we have like additives in modern commercial paints, which really started in about the 19th century. Um, that changes the um, overall handling properties of the paint. And that's because they're not organic, those paints that are chemically made? Well, technically all paints are organics. Right. They're, they're all organic materials, whether it's an acrylic or an oil or whatever it is. And we're talking about organic chemistry. So. Right. Um, but it, the fact is, is that when you put additives, of course, these additives affect the handling properties of the paint, just like each individual pigment affects the handling property of the paint. And what's, what's the purpose of um, paint, company, paint companies putting additives into their paint? Um, to prevent pigments from separating from the oil, as an, in an oil paint, as an example. There's added, many additives in acrylic paints to achieve uh, a stabilized paint. Is that so, a bad thing that, to add additives? No, it's not a bad thing. Um, they, they, they have certain functions to perform in a commercial paint. They allow paint to be stored for longer periods of time. So you don't get as much like right. pigment separating Separated, from the oil. Right, the oil. That's, what, that's the main purpose of the additive there. Um, so that's the function. Are but there, but they, it changes the effect of the paint. Um, <laughs> the heaters are just deal with the bus. Do they, is, I, I had a, a panicky moment. I, I do occasionally mix my own paints. And I had a, a panicky moment when uh, I realized that um, Ivory black is such a slow dryer, or I don't know, titanium white seems to be a slow dryer, and a lot of the umbers are fast dryers. And I started to wonder if some of the additives are to stabilize so that all the paints dry a little bit more evenly, like maybe they put dryers in ivory black, uh, versus if you're painting with cobalt blue, it's going to dry almost you know, instantly. And 
is, is that one of the additives or is that not? And is that something I should be worried about when I'm making my own paints that I want to be painting in uh, using colors that are going to dry more quickly in the uh, earlier underpainting layers and then reserve those slower dryers for the upper layers? <clears throat> so some of the uh, dryers are sometimes used in commercial paints because things like uh, carbon blacks, like lamp black, mm -hmm. uh, the carbon actually is an antioxidant for oil, so it's going to dry much slower. Right. So uh, the add addition of a dryer is there to help it dry at a reasonable rate. And uh, dryers are not necessarily bad, although the overuse of dryers can lead to uh, accelerated aging of the paint itself. But uh, even the old masters like Rembrandt would often throw in a little bit of smalt, which is a cobalt uh, glass, would throw it into the paint to dry, make it dry faster. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just the, the indiscriminate use of dryers, which wouldn't be a good idea. Well, one thing you mentioned to me that completely surprised me is the idea that you can use simple uh, Ob uh, simple um, materials around you to do the same effect without necessarily adding too many mediums or resins and all that stuff. And one of the things you showed, uh, well, Tanya showed over there. Hi, Tanya. Tanya's in the corner. She refuses the talk. She, she won't come, come on the we mic. Will, we will stare at you. Is that you took, you actually took um, egg yolk the same way you would make egg tempera and you put that into the oil paint. Mm -hmm. And you even mentioned that the fact that you can add some water to the egg yolk and then add that to the oil paint, which would always seem like, no, you, you know, I would think normally that you couldn't do that. Can you explain why, the idea of taking things that are readily available uh, in making oil paints and just adding them at different proportions or adding a couple of different things to it to do the same effect without having to use mediums and all these other things that can uh, make a painting unstable? Mm -hmm. The uh, uh, egg yolk, obviously egg yolk is a, is a good uh, emulsion. Right. You know, you have you have oil and you have uh, a water component, and they're they're mixed together. Uh, it, so that emulsion is makes it a, a stable emulsion when you add it to oil paint, and so you can add actually water to the oil paint, um, and in the form of just simply adding a little bit of water to the egg yolk and then dropping that into the oil paint. What that does is it is it accelerates the drying of the paint. Um, and the uh, and most of all, of course, the proteins in the egg yolk, like like you would poach an egg mm -hmm. uh, through heat, oils also tend to poach an egg, just like many other uh, types of uh, acids and alkalis. So as they're oxidizing, they're cooking the egg. They're in a sense they're cooking the egg, if you want to think of it like that. Yeah. <laughs> so just simply adding the egg yolk, you, you've got a poached poached egg in the. Uh, in the medium, but it does accelerate the drying, and um, and it was you, it, you actually the demonstration uh, what Tanya did was to add drops. Hey Tanya, how's it going? <laughs> She's cringing. Refuses right now. to come. She over. won't even look at us. Right now. <laughs> so what what she did is add a drop, a couple drops of egg yolk into uh, some oil color, and then started to work it in there, and immediately it started to seize up, and. Um, and of course, you can vary that time by just simply adding more water to it, and you can get you can get a little more open time with it. But it seizes up. It's the paint isn't completely dried, obviously, but but it's it's uh, it's a lot. You know, it has become a lot more hardened. And 
And apparently that's what a lot of these, uh, uh, that's what a lot of 17th century artists use. We find evidence of that in Rembrandt's paintings. So there's egg proteins in Rembrandt's paintings. Not only egg proteins, but hide glue. One, and what, cow urine, right? In his white? Yes, yes, yeah. And some of the whites and some, we all, they, they used, he used cherry tree gum. There's evidence of that in a, in a red uh, uh, paint. Um, and there's uh, uh, gum Arabic. Uh, all these different things were used. Does all this come from your, your conversations with the conservationists? Or how, a lot, how are you a learning lot, about a, that? Some of it does come from that. But actually, a lot of it is, is in books published online. Wait a sec. These books that you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> What are these? these are all reports, like the National Gallery published a, oh, I've seen a whole that. series yeah. of technical bulletins. Those it's are great, right there. and they're yeah, they're available. You just sign up; they're free, right? And they're, well, you can buy them, but it's not it's not a lot of money, and uh, uh, and uh, some of this information is available free online, and so it's all it's actually all out there. We just so you just read a lot online. And I you read a lot. It all <laughs> so you spend my hours, you know, at the computer all. And then <laughs> so. you've but you, one of the big things that that I've was drawn to that you were doing was that the stack white stack process white stack white process the For lead white, lead white mm -hmm. that you were somewhat you were recreating the white i mean it's been a mystery the white that rembrandt used and that's your this is the closest approximation to that is that it's we 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 made it as close as possible to what we believe to be uh, a, a dutch a dutch process that's why they call it the, oh, the dutch, dutch process method. right and, but the process, in essence, has not changed over the past 2,000 years. We, we, uh, we can read about the actual, some of the, the a clue to it was written by Pliny, the elder, in, uh, in his book, uh, his natural history. And, um, and that process hadn't changed, you know, in the 16th century. Actually, the only, the time when it actually did change dramatically was in the 20th century. Or the 19th century, too, no? Uh, 19th century, they were st the majority of the companies, like the National Lead Company here in the United States, was still making or using the stack process even as early as the, uh, as the first, first quarter of the 20th century. Oh, wow. Can you describe what the stack process is? Yeah, that's a, it's a really, uh, essentially, and again, it hasn't essentially changed in its parts. And so, basically, they take metal, metallic lead, and, uh, and the form of it can be like in thin sheets or in what they call buckles or uh, other types of examples. They put it into clay pots and at the bottom of the pot, but not touching the metal, is, uh, is vinegar. And, uh, cow urine. No, not, not. <laughs> would, it would be. <laughs> they would have used that with, uh, for instance, Brushes maybe making vertigrees or copper or something like uh -huh. that. But, uh, um, <laughs> But the, the, uh, they would put that pot into horse dung and... Uh, bury it? And Close enough. Bury it, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, <laughs> same, uh, same excrement. So, <laughs> so then, uh, and re the reason why they, they got the, the name stack process is because they would have uh, rows and columns of these pots buried in, in horse dung. And then they would put another layer of boards on top of that, another layer of horse dung, and then the pots would be, and then they would just continue just stack, them up. stack it up, and they would put it in a room and close it. And about three months later, they would open it up, and all the metal would corrode and have a white uh, deposit on it. And that's the lead white. 
It's and is it actually so? Is the sheet coming apart and corroding? It's kind of corroding all the way through. And so the sheet basically dissolves into these basically, crumbly you know, you know, white deposits. If, in fact, when they when you take it out of out of these pots, the uh, lead white literally flakes off. Oh, hence flake the white. term flake white. Oh, that's where that's it comes where from. it comes from. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what about flake white number two? What's <laughs> about mummy white? Mummy white. Well, there is. A, I, I, I'm not familiar with a mummy white. Oh, mummy white, but there is a, a mummy red or mummy brown. Is this really made of mummies? It's really it's made of mummies. Zombie. They have <laughs> zombie. Yeah. They have zombie blue. Where do they get the mummies? They were getting them uh, Egypt. Uh, at one one author was describing that they had tr uh, train loads of mummies. And the Egyptians, of course, you know, they, they mummified everything, not just humans, but all their pets, all their animals, they would mummify. So there were, I mean, it, it is very, it is not a, an exaggeration <laughs> to say they had trainloads of mummies. And it's believed that they would grind them up and uh, use them as a paint. Yeah, speaking of mummies, some of the oldest paintings that I've ever seen were those, the uh, paintings, the portraits that are done on sarcophagi mm -hmm. in encaustic, uh, the Fayum portraits, I mm -hmm. think they're called, mm -hmm. and uh, there was a show of them at the Metropolitan, and I was amazed how uh, modern-looking a lot of those portraits looked. I mean, they looked like, first of all, they were so well-preserved. I mean, the wood is buckling and warping, mm -hmm. and but... The paint, the, the pigment seemed fresh. It seemed a lot newer than a lot of 19th century paintings. Uh, is wax a good thing to paint with? Wax is a very good thing. Yeah, it's one of the, oh, like we talked about in the workshop, one of the most destructive uh, elements in painting is water. It, it comes, it's, in, it's present everywhere. It's in the air, it's the moisture in the air. And Wait, wax we, is... Could uh, Ted guess what the second most destructive thing in in a painting is? Can you guess? The second most? Me. <laughs> um, Wiley Ted is... Uh, the canvas? I don't know. Canvas? No? Uh, well, that's generally because of water and, and movement. Oh, so and water light? Oh. Water what? Light. Light? Light. Light is, is a very destructive force. Yeah, it's the not the second most? The ultraviolet light, <laughs> the oxygen, Oxid you know, oxidation. oxidation. But, but, but by far, water is... is uh, because Mainly because it's just because all the materials are expanding and contracting with changes in humidity, and it's, so we get mechanical failure. But so then if you have a stable surface, that's less it, of a factor. It, it's sure, yeah. It so reduces some, that fact, in right. factor in, in the painting, so. Um, but what were we talking about? Before I just <laughs> stopped it dead. It was encaustic Encaustic painting. painting. Encaustic, yeah. Well, wax is, is, uh, wax is less pervious to, uh, or uh, uh, less pervious to water than, uh, than most of the actual other paint. Uh, so it makes a very good painting uh, medium to work in. Just a little more difficult, obviously, because you have to work with it. On wet, a hot uh, plate, yeah. Hot, and then yeah. is, well, heat, I guess, is becomes the most destructive force for that, for encaustic. Right, right. right. I've yeah. seen, um, there's a great uh, anatomy museum in, um, in Italy, in Florence, and they've got these beautiful, I think they're from the 18th century, these uh, kind of flayed people all around, these like incredible ecrochets. And uh, they're all kind of just a little bit sunken in because it gets so hot in the summer in Florence mm -hmm. that the wax melts a little bit every year. Um, and I can imagine that those encaustic portraits, sort of amazing that in uh, Egypt and, and Rome that those things didn't just melt off. 
Well, they were, of course, they were buried, but that helped oh, too. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> it was definitely away from light. Uh, one of the questions I had is <clears throat> that we talked about in the in the workshop is is the lack of knowledge that a lot of modern artists have with their materials. What's your opinion? Why do you think that happened? Why that? Why is that sort of the current state of um, of art material knowledge? I actually did a, um, uh, I wrote a paper for the College Art Association, a panel there, and uh, the, um, there's, uh, what the, the paper basically uh, states that there are, there were probably three main factors that led to this. One is uh, the growing amateur market for artists, which actually started maybe in about the sixth, uh, the, the, let's say the, about the 17th century. and. Uh, and at that time, 16th, 17th century, in fact, the word amateur actually literally means lover of the arts. And so um, their painting uh, after the Renaissance changed its status uh, and it became known as the polite arts. So that uh, painting and sculpture. And I think sculpture. So. <laughs> And, uh, Ted does the rude <clears throat> art. The rude art, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, what, so then, as a result, then, you know, we, the aristocracy, the nobility, they, they would uh, take their children to go to school, and they would learn how to paint, how to, uh, so they would learn about sculpture, poetry, and, and all these things. So this created an, a growing amateur uh, market for arts. Uh, and as a result, um, and of course, we know that artists always made their own materials uh, up to this point in time. Um, but uh, as this this growing amateur uh, artists, these the nobility, their aristocracy, were not going to make their own materials. So they uh, there there was a growing market of color men. These people who sold the pigments to artists then started to make the paint, and they would make the paint, put it in pig bladders, and sell it to these individuals, and they would start painting with it. Very capitalistic of them. Yes, <laughs> but still, the professional artists continued to make their own paints. So their their knowledge of materials was very, still very good. In about the 18th century, art, the status of the artist really changed at that time. And so, uh, so there was this idea of divorcing themselves from the actual intensive labor of the art. So they didn't want to, they didn't want to be making paint. They didn't want to get their hands dirty. Or hand, get their hands dirty. Except they for won't. Turner. <laughs> <laughs> So they so they started to uh, they started to buy rely on these artist colormen to purchase their paints ready made. Of course, the industrial revolution came about and it made it easy for the colormen to make paint and make it in much bigger quantities. Mm -hmm. So uh, by the 19th century, this wasn't well in full swing, and we have some of the earliest companies like Reeves and Sons and and uh, Windsor Newton. Who were making paints in uh, in England at this time, and other other uh, companies in other countries. So in Europe, this this was a flourishing um, trade, and so artists, little by little, divorced themselves from the craft of painting by not understanding all the materials they were making. Mm -hmm. And then they, and then, but that also opened a lot of doors. I mean, like they, uh, those paint manufacturers started making paint not in. Uh, pigs bladders but in tubes and that's then you get people going outside and actually painting sure, in yeah. plein air and yeah the first the first actual metal tube was invented by an American artist by the name of Rand and he patented it and then Windsor Newton 
changed the patent to put a screw top on it and, uh, and started using it in 1841 with their watercolors and then shortly thereafter with oil paints. What did Rand have on the top if it didn't have a screw Not top? Not a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> Flip top. So um, what is the, uh, uh, the business of making art supplies now, sort of modern day? You, you took the idea of taking something very traditional mm-hmm. and bringing it to a modern day art supply. Um, so we could make our own paint, like you were suggesting, or we can buy it. Sort right, of ready-made. Right. What's the business? Like, what's the difference between your paint and you know the other sort of regular big box paint? The the main difference is that um, again, it's the big box paint, if we want to call it that. All the the different commercial brands, they're using, of course, they're using the modern additives in their paint because. That's, that's where the, the present state of the technology and the development of pigments and everything else, even though they're still dealing with oil paint. Um, so that, of course, produces paint with a certain type of consistency, a certain type of body, and a certain type of appearance. And, and overall uniformed. And, and, and overall more uniformed. uniformity. It's like McDonald's. Yeah. It's got to taste the same in every city. So kind of in that sense, yeah. And there, so there, so we have greater uniformity, actually, even between. <laughs> just shaking his head. <laughs> Thank you, Jay. Was it the example, or were you just looking at? <laughs> Jay Brown. We're, we, we're not supposed to mention any brands. Is that? <laughs> no, that's fine. Go ahead. So, um, so, th- so there is greater uniformity because, in reality, when we think about it, the the uh, number of pigment manufacturers have dwindled over the years because obviously with corporations buying other corporations so that there's actually fewer and fewer companies making pigments. So mm-hmm. the, the pigments are now more uniform than ever before. In, Most people any, are any getting them from the same place. The, the artist materials manufacturers, they don't make their own pigments, so they buy them from the same places. Right. And so... So that was, uh, that was the reason why I started to go out to natural minerals, as an, as an example, and other pigments that were coming from many different sources, many different parts of the world. The consistency was different. And when we make, when we make paint with that, then we end up with a paint that is incredibly different. But it's not only just because we're using different pigments but it's because we don't use any additives. But then how, does, how do you have your tube sit on a shelf at, uh, you know, at a store? I mean, I assume a lot of those additives are just to promote shelf life on that's, their paints. So that's right. how do you deal with that problem? We quickly or, sell them. <laughs> <laughs> so we, no, what we have to do is, is uh, it requires that we, we approach the, the actual making paint a little bit differently. And um, like in what we, way? In the sense that since we can't put an additive in there to stabilize the pigment, mm-hmm. then we have to rely on one the stabilization of the uh, that we can overcome over time, and as well as using uh, basically mechanical force. So we do use, let's say, you know, we use some of the most uh, common equipment used in, in artist materials uh, paint making, which is a three-roll mill. Okay, yeah. That's found in every everybody's plants, and so, so and that's we, just to press the the pigment and the oil together. It's basically, with yeah, it's basically to, to, to uh, it basically uh, 
splits apart the, the different agglomerates and aggregates of pigment particles so that you get a smoother paint. Mm -hmm. So because when you initially mix it, you get a bunch of lumps. Right. And then we're breaking the lumps down into the actual particle of the pigment. Which is what I'm doing when I'm scraping exactly. it with my muller it's against a it's really, glass. Yeah, absolutely. No different from that. The mill does the same thing. Right. And, uh, but we can do it faster and we, yeah, obviously more mechanical force as a result of that. But you don't get big muscles like I have. <laughs> That's the, the downside of using the machine. <laughs> I'm going to kill you right now. <laughs> So by doing, you know, by, by doing this then, so we have to, uh, because we don't have these dispersants, we don't have these stabilizers, then we have to actually rely on time to help us do this. So, um, so what happens is as you, so a paint manufacturer can come along and then quickly grind the paint. They may grind the paint a number of different times and then immediately package it. Mm -hmm. Well, we can't do it that way. We have to, some of the paints we can do that because some of the pigments actually don't need any stabilizers anyway. Right. Um, Those are the, the pigments that just want to bind with the oil. They're right. just, they're happy to have the oil, they welcome it in, sure. and they stick together. They're they, they monogamous. Love, they love the oil. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and so lead white is a good example of that. Right. And uh, But there are the pigments that are quite a bit more stubborn, so it means that we have to grind it, and then store it. Let we, it sit for a while. Let it sit for a I while. I think you were talking about Prussian blue being one of those. Possibly. Prussian blue is, is not, so, I mean, we have to grind it a number of times because it's just very difficult to, very to difficult. separate them. Yeah. But let's say, for instance, we were talking about uh, a red ochre. Red ochre uh, doesn't wet very well. In other words, the, the oil doesn't want to bind very well to the pigment particles. So in that case, we do have to let it some time. And we can also assisted by varying the blend of linseed oils, as an example, in the paint uh, to, uh, you know, enhance the properties and decrease the uh, opportunity of, of paint settlement or pigment settlement. But we still get a little bit of pigment settlement in our paints, mm -hmm. uh, so we get a little bit of oil being expressed out of the tube. Uh, but for most professional artists, they, they understand that's right that actually you more just of a you're saying you could just remill re, remold just, that. you can just mix it back into the and into the be, paint and it's, fine. and it's fine yeah and yeah. you don't even necessarily need to mold you could just with a palette knife mix palette them together mix it up. It, yeah. Yeah. yeah one of the things that i got out of the workshop a lot is that the that oil paint is surprisingly resilient once you mull it and have it working it's it's sort of pretty strong stuff in the, in the sense that it's a very simple mixture. It's basically essentially oil and pigment. That's, yeah. And I can't say the same for, let's say, an acrylic paint. So separation in acrylic paint would be uh, more problematic because there are many more ingredients in there. Or how about water? How about poor pastel? Can you talk about pastel for a sec? <laughs> oh, poor! You were you were mentioning pastel, and my heart broke for pastel artists. When we think, you know, the the. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it's it. Yeah, it's unfortunate about pastels, but um, uh, and and it's pastels. The, the difficulty with pastels is that the pigment particles. Uh, what what we do know about pigments and the, what causes them to fade is both ultraviolet light and oxidation, and of course humidity. And pastels, there's nothing protect 
Oh, they're just exposed. They're, they're on exposed. the paper they're sitting on the there. Paper sitting they're there. sitting ducks. Yeah, and so they're easy, easy prey for <laughs> yeah. all these different elements to just pick them up. Yeah. <laughs> it's that poor little sick, you know, duck at the watering hole with alligators and lions and so, everything just waiting. To <laughs> right, on right. If you did have a pastel then that you wanted to preserve, you would want to put it in some sort of like a airtight frame with UV glass. You definitely want to want to put a, a glass frame. Uh, I mean a, a glass front over it with that has UV protection on it yeah you know, uh, UV absorbers so. but even then there's air travel you're just not the other gonna... the other problem is it's it eventually the pigment particles will fall off the paper right there's nothing holding them on no and if you look at any pastel drawing <laughs> you just look at the bottom of the frame and there's you can see you can see part of your drawing already there that you know? is so sad what, what if there was one thing, like if you go around, I'm sure you, you see lots of artists working, if there's one thing that like eats up at you most, like the one thing that gets under your skin most that they're doing, one thing that you just can't believe that they're doing, what is it? What's say, the an one? Acrylic, say an acrylic gesso. <laughs> say an acrylic you gesso. You really yeah. hate, that's a pet peeve. Why? That's a pet peeve. No, it's because the uh, gesso, the actual uh, word gesso comes from the Italian, which means gypsum. Uh-huh. And uh, which used to be the case for Italian grounds. They would mix the gypsum with, uh, with an animal collagen hide glue, mm -hmm. and then they would make a ground out of it. Well, there's nothing like that in, in acrylics. It's, they use maybe chalk, they may use titanium white, different uh, white pigments, and they mix it with an acrylic. So uh, it's, it's just, when I'm dealing with traditional types of, of grounds, it becomes very confusing. I'm talking about gesso, and everybody's hearing acrylic. Acrylic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, so yeah. What was the one? What's one of the other big pet peeves or big misconceptions in art supplies that you're like, whoa, you guys got that completely wrong? Like, what can you say to save all the artists out yeah. there who are save doing us? It's, we're asking you to <laughs> save yeah. us. I think the most important thing that, and this is what we, I, I, I told the workshop Stupid is. Stupid canvas. <laughs> is Don't just, paint, just paint on a rigid support. What, what about gluing your canvas to a panel? Is that not good? No, that's better. It's much better. Much you know, better. Because now we've, we've taken this flexible support, and now we've put it on a rigid, stable support. And there, um, I usually glue it with something somewhat acrylic, I guess, but uh, people use rabbit skin glue. I've heard that too much rabbit skin glue can cause big problems with paintings. Is that true? Is there some problem with, with like, if you use a lot of rabbit skin glue that it makes the surface unstable or? Um, you mean in terms of mounting the canvas mm -hmm. or? Yeah. It's, it's the, only, the only issue with, uh, uh, the issue with rabbit skin glue is that it absorbs moisture readily so that it, it actually just becomes very weak Especially okay. at high humidity. So, so over time, it's gonna, it'll, you'll have to re-glue it with something that's yeah, not going to Yeah, it's, it's not as stable. So if you want a more stable adhesive, then, you know, obviously things like acrylics or PVA or things of this. And, of course, in the conservation world, they use wax resins and things mm -hmm. of this nature. Um, I have another question. A friend of mine recently... Uh, he asked me to ask you. Who's this friend of yours? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not allowed to say, but he, uh, he, he, actually, he recently got a hole in one of his canvases, and he was asking. <laughs> so he was going to glue another piece of raw linen to the back with rabbit skin glue, 
to patch it. But then there's usually a little bit of, if, depending on how the hole is made, he had a little bit of an indentation in the actual, the canvas itself was sort of has a little dent in it now. Mm -hmm. And so he wanted to fill the dent in, almost like spackling a wall. Mm -hmm. Is that, is there a way to do that that a good idea versus a bad idea is that is if he were to spackle it with lead spackle? no <laughs> <laughs> would lead be a good idea to fill in that or no i'm i'm not a uh, expert on, on restoration especially with mm -hmm. issues like that so i i would be afraid to give uh, very bad advice well, off the record nobody listens to this podcast so. <laughs> but uh, ted but wants to know i mean ted's friend wants <laughs> my friend to know. don't put holes in your canvas yeah, yeah so try not to put holes actually in your canvas. see if, if if he if if uh, he would have not painted on canvas that probably you know the tear wouldn't have probably right. occurred in the first place <laughs> another reason for not using canvas <laughs> you know you well, the problem is boards, painting it, big, you know, I mean, up to a certain size board is pretty good. But, uh, you know, if you're shipping your paintings out, it gets very expensive to ship a large board because the panel gets heavy. And then the biggest plywood pieces of, of panel that I've found are four foot by eight foot. So if you want to do something bigger, you're, you know, you're out of luck. And then a four foot by eight foot. I don't know, half-inch ply isn't going to be, so you get a thicker plywood, but then it's extremely heavy. You know what? I mentioned the same thing, and you um, you kind of beat me up on it. Not not too bad, but I was like, what about this? Exactly what Ted said. Mm -hmm. And you were like, well, it's not going to be that much heavier if you use, let's say, a honeycombed, uh, you know, a honeycombed aluminum, some sort of uh, metal. Wait, not going to uh, be that much heavier than just stretching it on stretcher bar? You mean the, the honeycomb um, is light? Well, if you some of the some of the alternatives would be instead of even wood would be uh, a metal substrate like like a dye aluminum bond composite or, right. uh, dye bond and uh, aluminum composite material and they're uh, heavier but not like extremely heavy. Um, I would say that weight for weight they're almost the same as even a well stretched and of course on, on a substantial uh, stretcher bar. Stretcher bar is like um, a big thick right, right, meaty right. stretcher so bar. So I you know size for size it, it'll probably vary very close in weight. And, so, I, and of is course it all, true I mean, that you're working on a carbon fiber backing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now we're it's really space age. <laughs> it's spacey. Of course I'm, all the canvas manufacturers technology. are going to absolutely hate you for this kind of stuff. Yeah. Well you, you're still recommending gluing the canvas if you want to work on yeah, canvas. Yeah sure. Right? Working with canvas on, well, on a substrate. Old, if you take it, what about for older paintings? Is it, would, would laminating them onto a more rigid material be a solution for preserving? That's exactly what uh, many uh, many museums do and, and restores. They they actually take because obviously the the canvas is disintegrating, so they mount it uh, either on a rigid surface or in some cases they have to they obviously they have to mount it not obviously but they have to mount it on a uh, on another canvas and they usually use a polyester material which is going to be more a little more. Uh, quite a bit more stable than some of these other materials. And that's something that uh, I didn't realize is that when we were talking about canvases, and the great thing about the workshop is you weren't saying don't use canvas. Mm -hmm. You know, you were saying, yeah, of course you might use canvas. Here's Here's how. the difference between cotton. Here's the difference between linen. The thing that you were bringing up was polyester and things like the canvas that they would make for sale, like sales. Yeah. And you're like, that's actually better. Yeah. Well. It's just that you can't find the difference in weave or all that. That's the only difference. Otherwise, if they started making different weaves, 
and some of the, some of these polyesters, and they would be actually a lot better than linen. Right, right, and and the main simple reason is because they're as they have very little response to moisture, which is again what is what's causing a lot of the problems in canvas. So that you know, we, how about we'll Gore-Tex? Can we paint on Gore-Tex? Which is just another synthetic material. I you know <laughs> it depends, but you see the problem is because of the. Just the weave, the structure, aesthetically, is not very appealing. Like right. if you're painting on a sail, as an example, but uh, and then you have to remove the battens and from the sail. <laughs> have problems with <laughs> the that. The logo, <laughs> the sunfish, <laughs> the, the clear areas of the sun. Um, what I had a friend recently. Uh, Who's his friend? Is another it? friend? <laughs> another friend. It's a different friend. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, friend. Who was he yeah, was talking friends. about uh, reading older texts about paintings and. They all reference, and I've come across this, oil of turpentine, and having this revelation that it's not, oil of turpentine is not turpentine, and so he started to paint with your um, U-cell spike oil, which mm -hmm. is a lavender uh, oil that can be used as a solvent, mm -hmm. and uh, he was painting with the spike oil, which he said is the closest thing right now to oil of turpentine, and using that... Uh, to help the flow on an underpainting and then painting on top of it and it's set, uh, but also had a little bit of, um, maybe a little bit more body. And he was saying that the, um, that the turpentine was, uh, was robbing a lot of the pigment, uh, if you're just using turpentine, was robbing a lot of the pigment of the oil. And so then you're left with an unstable surface of just pigment on the canvas. So that the um, the spike oil wasn't removing the oil that was actually more oil, so but but a, a faster drying oil, so it set nicely for kind of an underpainting. Is that is that sound like <laughs> George comment? You're, you're, you don't you look skeptical. Um, it, it, this is the same guy who put the hole in the painting. Right? The, yeah, the, <laughs> oh, okay. Starts okay. with the T, ends with oh. the D. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I understand why <laughs> this is. So it it. The, uh, of course, oil of turpentine is simply turpentine. Oh, it is the it same is, thing. It is, except that informally, um, they didn't, the distillation process wasn't as good. Because when you, ter where, where does turpentine come from? It's simply the Wait, can I answer from, that? Yeah, great. Oh, yes, right. it is. Yes. It yeah. just comes, took the workshop. It comes He's got a certificate. from pine trees. Right. Yeah. And there's different ways. There's wood turpentine and gum. And the gum turpentine you were saying, you may, they pretty much make an X in the in the in the, the the bark of the tree, and they 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 take it out just like you would maple syrup. Where wood turpentine is usually where it's uh, uh, wood they would get and um, like a stump, like, like a stump or yeah. something, mm -hmm. grind it up. Now would they? I forgot. Did they? Would they cook it? They distill it. They, they distill they, it. Yeah, they, it's it's destructive distillation. And, and that's so, the result of that. Right. So right. when you were mentioning the difference between gum and wood turpentine, mm -hmm. usually gum is better. Not, but, it's not necessarily better. Not but necessarily, it's, both work. What's the both difference? Work. Like what, uh, in terms they of handling? They both come from the same trees, same type of trees. But it's a different, um, they're... They get them in different ways, but what... They just, yeah, it, it basically all evaporates, so it doesn't really alter... I mean, there might be a slightly different evaporation rate. There, there, the you know the the com constituents of the turpentines are slightly different, but uh, the smells vastly different. 
the gum, gum turpentine smells we, more piney or yeah we, we tend to associate right. with that sweet pine smell and the wood turpentine has this uh, in my at least for me it's very objectionable it does a kind of a pungent smell so you'll huff the gum turpentine yeah, any over day the, yeah. <laughs> are they both I mean turpentine is terrible for you right well, yes. And yes. are but they yeah. both equally terrible for equally, you? Equally, yes. And Roughly same thing with the, the odorless mineral spirits that people are, they're just not smelling it, but they're having the same effect. Is it, that you can, you can, um, uh, you can, in, you can smell more of it and have less effect, mm -hmm. but it's still toxic. Yes. Right. Yeah. So no matter what, you don't no, want to be huffing no. your turpentine. Right. No, nothing do, like that. <laughs> do you know the difference between triple rectified turpentine and other? It's been rectified three times. <laughs> <laughs> They're all rectified three times. They're all rectified. <laughs> they're they're most you know. There's there's so much standardization in this industry that they're all basically uh, distilled the same amount. And but so they're. Do you know the difference between artist turpentine and art store and the stuff you get in a hardware store? I know that they smell. The hardware store smells worse. It's, it's probably the wood turpentine. It's the wood yeah, turpentine, yeah. but do you yeah. know the difference between the gum turpentine and hardware stores and the gum turpentine and uh, uh, um, paint store and art stores? I would imagine that, I don't know what the process for distilling is, but that the art stores is cleaned a little bit more, that the... Um, nope. No? They're the same. They're exactly the same? Idiot. They're, uh, we buy them from the same sources. <laughs> uh-huh. So, so it's, it's all the same. It's, it's, it's roughly the same, yeah. What there, about there may when be, they... There may, well, there will be some small differences from, you know, from major processor to major processor, but we get them all from the same places. There's just less sawdust in yours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask Tony, since you just took a two-day uh, 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 workshop on the pigments, what was, what was the biggest revelation in the, uh, in the workshop? I know I... At one point, uh, bumped into you, and you said that uh, you were learning about different pigment sizes, and that, that yeah, was I think the pigment size, uh, and the, these are things I sort of knew about, but then when you, you knew about pigment sizes, a little bit, you did not. Bit. He's bluffing. <laughs> but when you would, whether it's pigment sizes, but the other things that you kind of know, but when you really spell it out, it's like, oh, the idea that everything on the painting affects the stability of it, whether it's the support, the ground, the paint itself, what goes into the paint, what's on behind the painting, the frame, the glass on it, everything becomes the painting, no matter what it is. And it's something that you know, but when you were sort of putting that all together, I was like, wow, every, the, the idea of us joking to each other about being anal retentive about one part of the painting and, and you know, whether, or, or all, all of the aspects of the painting really does make sense. And everywhere, you know, everything from the ground, the support to the frame itself is important in the longevity, the life, the life of this painting. That was a big one. Uh, a bunch of little technical things which I totally geeked out on and I loved um, <laughs> whether it was like you know anything from adhesion to even some of the uh, the paint film um, so when it starts breaking down um, all that was really interesting Wait, but what is adhesion you have to go back a little bit I didn't get to I, <laughs> I've been teaching all week and I yeah. didn't get to do the workshop so. yeah no the adhesion thing was great too and, and the difference between um, uh, the t different types of adhesion um, whether it's whether we were talking about canvas on on support or just the way um, the paint um, the paint film sticks to the canvas and not saying the glue, not glue in that sense but the idea of each paint layer really um, 
bonding, you know, the, the proper way that it should bond together. Mm-hmm. I think the idea of light refraction was a big, big uh, idea. Refracting I mean, these are, through the paint? Through the paint. But all this Op- stuff was... We covered the optics of, of the paint optics itself. Of paint. You know, all the different factors. That Can you affect- d- talk about that? Because I'm just mentioning these little <clears throat> things up in the air, and right now people are like, what is he talking about? I know, about? I'm here yeah. salivating. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, so any of that stuff that you would think would be really important, big, like... Secret little things, but but like important uh, things that most artists just don't know about. Yeah, I think one the, the most important thing you mentioned was the very first thing, which is that everything that becomes part of our painting, whether it's a panel, a canvas, a stretcher bar, even the frame, it's very Buddhist. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's all one. It's all one. <laughs> we all do an own. Yeah, we do an own. <laughs> But it is, it does, everything affects each other. There's, <laughs> they, they're all, you know, they're, they're all moving because they're expanding, contracting. And so what the frame is a piece of wood, it's expanding and contracting. At different rates. At different and rates. And the idea is to try to, to try to stop, to try to minimize that, that, that so everything is, it, it's almost like fault lines. It's like everything is moving at completely different rates. All these rates. tectonic plates. Yeah. That's right. No. It, it is in a sense like that. And so we're trying to minimize the movement right. so that the expansion, contraction in response to the environment. So that's why, you know, and because paint film has actually responds, especially oil paint and lead white paint especially, responds very little to changes in moisture. So if you have a canvas that's doing this wildly, expanding and contracting, and you can and imagine, not. and the paint's not. So it, then eventually you're gonna get fault lines. Right, right, that's what cracking is all about. So that's really the most, to see that, because artists tend to, you know, they tend to th- focus on the paint layer itself. And so, and that's why the mentality is such where I'm gonna buy the cheapest support material, you know, like cheapest canvas I can possibly find, the cheapest cheapest ground, and not think that that's actually part of their painting. And they'll spend then a fortune on paint. And they've cut themselves off at the right. knees. But it's even the, if it's I'm the spend- weakest link, like a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Right, right. So <laughs> you read that on a poster. It's a It's in the conference room of the Grand Central Academy. <laughs> Um. <laughs> but that, is, that really is the most important. I mean, that's the most important thing you can walk away with. And if you understand that, then, then you, you see your painting differently, and then you start thinking about, okay, what, what kind of materials should I use that will do, that will be less responsive to moisture, that will, and of course, it leads to the log, these logical conclusions of rigid supports. So gluing your canvas with like a PVA size or something to a stable support, that's, that's a great place to start. That's a great place to start. If you, if you do that, you, you know, probably resolve 90% of the issues with the aging of paintings. Um, and, and that's why that's so important. That's why we spend what the better, better part of the first day of the two-day workshop just on that factor alone. But then the paints themselves, I mean, like... Asphaltium was a terrible wrong turn. Oh, I, I mean, asked I, that. I asked that question, <laughs> and you again some people, slapped me down. Well, <laughs> I, I've heard some people say that you can you can use it, but as far as I understand, it's responsible for I think one of the greatest tragedies in Western art, which is the Raft of Medusa at the Louvre, which is mm-hmm. bubbling up and just. It, I mean, one of the figures is gone. It's called it's, blooming. Blooming. Yeah. <laughs> it's blistering and so yeah, forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And. Yeah. Uh, 
so what what's the, why did they I mean why did they get into it and what what's exactly happening with it and is it possible to use it uh, in a way that won't destroy your painting and make it bubble up and bloom the 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 problem is that it uh, came from various sources and some of it was not very was unscrupulously purchased or, or sold. So Jericho got a bad batch of asphaltium. It's very possible. Um, because could have been, I mean, essentially... Could it, could it be his ground, too? It could have been... Could it there be a are, there's, of, of course, mitigating things? factors. There's painting techniques. There's all these different things going on. But the, the asphaltum is, is actually just a, an umbrella name for a wide range of materials that are basically originating from tar, coal, mm -hmm. coal tars. And so what... What they're, uh, so the problem is, is what type, where does it come from, how, how stable it is. And um, so uh, if you read some of the old 19th century manuals, they talk about the best type at the time was um, bitumen or asphaltum right. from the Dead Sea, because that was a much harder form of it. But some people would just take like tar or, you know, from a petroleum deposit and just start selling that. And of course, that was very unstable. It's so, DIY. Painting. I mean, <laughs> yes. you did mention, not to cut you off, but you did mention you know people who would like stop the car on the side of the road and just start digging. Yeah, for, and, like, for pigments? Yeah. Not for tar. <laughs> no, not for tar. <laughs> but they would start like breaking off pieces of yeah. rock and everything and, and make paint out of it. And you said it's perfectly good. Yeah. 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 It, it's a lot of the deposits of color you see out there is. is is actually iron oxide. Just earth. It's it's, it's, it's dirt. Iron, iron oxide is rust. Right? It's rust. rust. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and uh, most of the planet is covered with it. Right. So where you see not all the time, but where you see brightly colored, you know, reds and yellows or browns, uh, and especially like if it's a road cut or the side of a mountain that's been excavated, uh, there you've got a fresh deposit of this material. And in our little town, we've got a place called Red Hill. And it's this is in California. It's in California, yeah, and and uh, and it's this beautiful red hill. It's all iron oxide. You could go there and dig it out and make a red iron oxide paint. And of course, you need to wash it and things like that. But but the process is very simple. This and these these pigments have been done like that since prehistory. So we've got the example of the Altamira caves, which actually a lot of that is iron oxides. Mm -hmm. And so those are very, those are the most stable pigments on the planet and have always been with us and, and hopefully will always be with us. So what are the most unstable <laughs> pigments on the planet? What are people what using? What would you stay far away from? And zinc white? Zinc is pretty bad. You were zinc is, is uh, it's, there's a mixed bag with that. And what, yeah. I was, what I was trying to get across to uh, the students there was that zinc in oil paint, and this problem is, is an issue with oil paint only, uh, as far as we know today, is that it causes the oil paint to become brittle. Now, but it's great in watercolor. It's fine in watercolor. It has it's, it's very good uh, white in watercolor, and it's uh, undoubtedly a good white in many other pigment, uh, other paints. But the issue is that, and it's been well known. It's it's been known for about a century that it causes the embrittle uh, the embrittlement of the oil paint. And um, the problem is, is that we don't really understand why it does that. So we don't know what are the circumstances in which this, because you'll find examples of zinc white where in oil paint, where like as an example, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, the paintings are in, 
in uh, relatively good condition. Yeah, the colors are always... Yeah. And, but in other cases, you'll see, let's say, in some other paintings, uh, you'll see examples where it's causing the cracking and the delamination of the paint itself. So, uh, so artists beware is, right. what, is what I tell. Sounds you know, like I it's say. reacting to something that they're it, using with it in those cases where it's cracking versus... It's, uh, it's forming zinc soaps, and the zinc soaps uh, are leading to the instability of the paint. And there was another report just published uh, uh, two years ago that has now identified the combination of aluminum stearate, which is a common additive in commercial paints, and zinc soaps lead to phase separation, and the, which has further implications for the instability of oil paint. What does phase, phase separation, separation mean? Yeah. It's, it's an instability in the, in the, in the oil itself. But where is it an actual physical waveform phasing? No, no, it's not the same as in, uh, it's, a, it's a chemistry term. It's not the same as in, in, uh, in audio engineering, yeah. <laughs> no, phase cancellation happens in a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that, uh, that isn't, that's a, 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 that's a problem that's just now being identified. So we'll probably see more issues as time goes on. So it's just, uh, there, there, of course, there isn't any, any perfect pigments out there. All pigments will have some kind of issue. Mm -hmm. uh, some, they'll create some instability. But we do know that lead, basic lead carbonate or lead white, stabilizes oil. So it actually improves the longevity of the paint, and this is well known. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, and this holds true for any sort of anything made with lead, as far as uh, if you're having a, a Naples, like a traditional it's, it's Naples. It's specifically yellow, true of uh, of basic lead carbonate or lead, or carbonate. lead white. So yeah. I have a couple of little kids. So you're recommending I should paint my house with lead paint? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, no, it's uh, obviously there's it's a good reason why it was banned from uh, right, from commercial yeah. paints, uh, but it was also good uh, that it was uh, artists were exempted from that ban in their paints. So we're all, in this country, we're all in but the United in Europe, States. But in Europe, they're they're not, not right. They're, they're, it's restricted. So you have to be a specialist in order to use lead white. But you can't make lead white in Europe. Right. Uh, as far there, as like the big, the bigger companies, there are some companies that still are, and I'm not sure the circumstances for that. But some of the companies have moved that operation to China. Yeah. They don't so care. they're they're making they're making it there, where along with their Chinese vermilion, along with the Chinese vermilion, yes. Which the byproduct is, it, it's very toxic, right? When you're making vermilion, is that? Uh, it's toxic because you're dealing with the fumes mercury, of mercury, right? Know, well, and um, so that's. But in fact, China is the only place that's making genuine vermilion these days, which is where we get our, our vermilion. But what's the difference between what Chinese vermilion seems to be a cooler red than French vermilion, which almost seems slightly orangish, uh, which looks more like the vermilion that I'm used to seeing? Well, the, the, um, as far as I know, the French are no longer making vermilion. And if we're talking about the actual origin, then mm -hmm. there isn't any French vermilion these days. <laughs> right. But the but there um, is a color. I mean, there's a real color. The difference, difference has to do with how it was made. Some uh, the Chinese vermilion traditionally was made for what they call the dry process, which is done in a furnace. Mm -hmm. And the French vermilions, uh, at least some of it, was done through a wet process. So the resulting the result is slightly different uh, hues of uh, of red. Um, but what you read on the tube as French vermilion and it Chinese vermilion may not actually be vermilion at all. So you have to read the label to determine what pigments were used to make that when color. When did they stop making French vermilion? 
Um, I'm not sure the the terminal date, you know, when that was when that stopped. What are you but, trying to uh, stump on? Well, no, you're trying to stump George. Actually, yeah. because, um, <laughs> no, I'm I'm curious because I, I uh, when I, I I lived in Italy uh, a while back and uh, somebody uh, a friend had bought up all the stocks of vermilion pigment from a an art supply store there, that's you know like a very very old art supply store. I'm wondering if he got real French vermilion. His vermilion looked a little bit more sort of orange, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, I'm wondering if that's possible. Even. Part, part of the reason why the vermilion may look different, because we know that... Particle size Particle size. Ah. <laughs> the smaller the particle, the more orange the vermilion is. Oh, so if you were to, like, uh, take the the vermilion that's coming from China and just grind it down a little bit more, it would get more orange? That's a possibility, yeah, yeah. Uh, but part of that is, is in the manufacturing itself, so, right. you know. So it'll never get quite as orange as the... And the process will be different. So there's, the, the variations are all, all of these different factors, the, the process as well as the particle size. You see it, and you know, occasionally you'll see an old painting, like a Velasquez that they've done pigment analysis on, that he used vermilion, and you'll mm -hmm. see just a little swipe of something that's this beautiful red, and that's the thing I'm always looking for. Mm -hmm. That is, that's it. That's usually it. <laughs> right. That or or minium, which is red lead. Oh right! So somebody else I I knew uh, another friend another, was mixing another friend. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have many friends. Um, he was mixing minium with vermilion to get a, a slightly warmer red. Right, right. Is that right? That would be one way to do it. Yeah, and actually, a vermilion can, under certain circumstances, uh, darken, and uh, especially when it's exposed to a lot of humidity and light. Mm -hmm. And uh, but not in every case. Um, not in Velasquez's case. Uh, yes, <laughs> but actually, if you if they found there's one report I read that if you if when they when they find it mixed with the minium, it actually uh, oh it holds can, up better. can hold up better. As oh, that's a result of so that. the minium because it's lead is adding improved stability to. We don't know what exactly what it's doing chemically, but it's it, it's, it we see the effect of it. You right. Know? I've noticed with lead, uh, just um, I use mostly lead white. Occasionally, I use some titanium white, and when I have uh, a bit left over on my palette and it gets really dry, and I have to scrape down my whole palette, the lead, no matter how long I let it dry, it comes off in kind of a, a in one sheet, and it's kind of bendable, and the titanium, when I'm scraping it off, chips off, and the little chips go everywhere. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> we showed a graph on that. Yeah, oh, really? At the... Yeah, we showed a graph showing how lead, uh, see, it, it, it does... It's a flexible... It keeps the oil, uh, drying oils like linseed oil, flexible for a longer period of time, whereas titanium doesn't do that. And that's and why titanium is more prone to cracking if you build it up a little bit. Exactly, oils. yeah. And, and that's why uh, one, uh, uh, if you, there's a, the website amian.org, if you read on one... There's a passage there uh, posted by a Dr. Yap Boon, and who is an expert in the aging at, from a le molecular level, the aging of oil paint. And he made the statement, uh, and I, I can't quote it for verbatim, but he made the statement basically that most of modern, uh, he's very concerned about the condition of 20th century painting that has relied on titanium white. Oh, yeah for the longevity of it, because nothing stabilizes oil like lead does. That's why we cannot, should not, ban it 
its use from from oil painting. Is that a, are they trying to ban that in America? No, not necessarily, but economically, um, it just doesn't make sense to make it. it. The, the manufacturers, uh, the only people that buy it, are artists. You know, or artist materials from companies, and there's there. not enough. And so, what are we like? 0.5 percent of the paint. Uh, you know. Of the total pigment, the total pigment yeah. probably usage. even less than that. Yeah, it's, it's what's the uh, biggest automobiles? Um, well, tight paint. You know, I mean, I don't know what the biggest you know amount of paint being sold, but certainly titanium white is manufactured in the you know uh, possibly even the millions of tons every year um, uh, because it's used in everything. You know, from food to automobile paint to house paint, everything. It's used in everything. So, uh, and of course, that's where it makes sense because it's, it, the, the toxicity is very low for it. But lead in oil is just absolutely necessary. So use lead white. Use lead white. <laughs> use lead. That's, do you, lead, do you guys good. Paint? Do you guys both paint still? I, uh, obviously, I don't have any time to paint at this point, but yes, I used to paint and, uh, you know, um, but I don't really have a lot of time anymore to, uh, to paint. I have, um, can you mention really quickly um, the uh, painting? How about the, you? Yeah, Tanya. Tanya won't, won't come over to the mic. What, Tanya? What was that? We didn't hear you. I never painted. You never? <laughs> she never painted, but she knows a lot about materials. She knows it's a lot. Amazing. I can, I can attest to that. <laughs> uh, I was wondering if you can just quickly mention, because uh, I know everybody who's listening right now, is, you know, they want to know a little bit more of like, the the meat this is all to me meaty good stuff but they're the idea of painting the best practices in painting mm -hmm. like you mentioned a list of 12 things uh, right. can you recite right. them from memory Verbatim now right now. <laughs> oh boy <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but the so, idea of it i thought was great yeah yeah so i, I made up a list there's 11 points here and, um, and then i'm going to test ted um on yeah. a quick quiz <laughs> and then we're going to talk about the archivalness of glitter <laughs> painting with light so basically um the most important point is painting on a rigid support absolutely thank you i need glasses so rigid here. support <laughs> rigid support one Rigid support, number one. And of course, protect the support on all sides from the environment. And painting. The sides, the back, everything. Everything. So varnish yes. on and the front. And there's different techniques. And I would Protect say it from various ways, via the frame, via coatings mm -hmm. or backings. The and backings and mm -hmm. all that. So right. I would definitely suggest taking taking your workshop to find out the different types of backing. We have all types of ways to do really it. They're really great. And right. things you can get very cheap at your it's, local hardware store. Right. It's not expensive. See, right now everybody's going nuts. They're like, yeah. what is it? <laughs> Paint on a white ground. White ground. Don't That's forget also that. very important. On a white ground. On a white ground. Do you Why know is that? Because oil paint, and this is particularly in case of oil paint, is because oil paint becomes increasingly transparent. Oh, right, right. So you don't want to have the surprise of your Something wood panel or dark linen showing through. And so white ground is very important. Use opaque paintings for the opaque uh, pigments in the first painting layers if you're doing indirect painting mm -hmm. because same, same reason. Uh, avoid repainting because Try not to make any mistakes in the composition. <laughs> I have no problems with that. Ted, on the other hand. <laughs> Otherwise, we have paintings with three hands, oh, uh, right. shifted noses, uh, oh, or nose. As the paint gets transparent, yeah, yeah. the third hand comes out, or yeah, the extra yeah, nose, yeah. right? It becomes like that badge yeah, Photoshop. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, of course, paint highlights with good thickness of lead white, because 
obviously we want to have bright highlights. The underlying paint layers must be dry before applying more paint layers. Fat over Hard lean. dry. Hard dry, hard yeah. Dry. You want it to hard dry so that because the uh, this has to do with the drying of oil. How do you test and, for hard uh, dry? What quick? is hard dry, yeah. Hard dry is that the, the, the oil paint has dried all the way through the coating and uh, to a large extent. And so simply just taking your index finger and, and twisting it into the layer of paint and seeing if it is actually disturbed. Mm -hmm. If it's disturbed, then it's that. not Ow. that. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> I'm disturbed. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> each layer has to, should be more flexible than the previous layer. And that's the fat overlean principle. Fat overlean. Uh, use few colors with most belonging to opaque pigments. Wait, so the fewer the colors, the mix, the colors that you're incorporating into mixtures. Right. The the more see each pigment introduces its own chemical reactions in the paint layer. Oh, and some don't like to be friends with other ones. Exactly. So the more the more pigments the more pigments you have is essentially just making a bigger chemical soup. And so there are more unknowns in that unknowns, chemical soup. Right. Exactly. I read the. Um, I mean, years ago, I, I opened up, I have an old copy of the Mayer book and looking through like what pigments don't like other pigments and what pigments are going to cause others to dark. I, I, I didn't want to know almost. I, right, I mean, right. I guess I do want to know, but I kind of don't. Right. Being ignorant can, is, can be a nice <laughs> Ignorance is sometimes. bliss. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's the, and of course, use lead white, avoid the use of zinc white. Mm -hmm. Although, again, it doesn't, doesn't mean you don't, you can't use it. It just means that it, ha it should be used intelligently, mm -hmm. and, and because of the fact we don't know what's going to happen to the paint after that. Titanium white is a little bit brighter than lead white, so sometimes I'll use that for to heighten the lights. Right, right, and that's and and that's of course important because uh, titanium white has its place in in oil painting. Right. Um, it's just that white becomes the main pigment that's all over your your painting right so then that means your painting will be stabilized but using titanium white to achieve a brighter white or more, or more opacity is a very good thing mm -hmm. um, of course we want to also avoid the use of varnishes or mediums and excess oil in oil paint oh so you don't recommend using any varnish in a medium or in an oh, oil in paint it. in a mixed into the oil paint not a varnish over the paint of course varnish, we do want to varnish well, but a lot of mediums will have like uh, a little bit of some sort of a resin in them like uh, a lot of them have damar uh, uh, one of the so you don't recommend the like linseed damar turpentine we, yeah, we spent several hours talking about. <laughs> We're both looking at you like idiot. <laughs> I'm kind of the I'm odd man on board. Out here, right? I was. Yeah. I think I asked this two same days question. ago. Right. But now I'm ignorant, like, but, ugh. Yeah. I can't so believe I'm even sitting that, near you. I mean, that was something that I. I mean, I. That's what everybody's people, doing. Right. And of course, you know, Ralph Mayer's handbook, uh, which is has source of excellent information, but that was one recommendation that he made that's actually very wrong and. Uh, because and why? Is it because the, the, it makes the, recomm it the recommendation, you know, the, the, the standard recommendation that many of us grew up with, generations of artists, you know, a third Damar varnish, a third turpentine, and a third stand oil. Right. And everybody started painting with that. But the problem is, is Damar is a very soft resin. And a Damar was often used as a varnish resin. So what happens when you go to clean your varnish and you have to use a solvent that removes 
the Damar. It removes the paint. It that's removes. Used. It, it okay. weakens considerably the paint film. But so then, if you had none at all, no no uh, varnish at all in your medium, or mm -hmm. no medium at all, mm -hmm. your paint film would withstand the cleaning off of the Damar better than with the medium with the Damar in it. Exactly. And yeah. what about Canadian balsam? Is that that's a that's another resin. And that's a yeah. good resin, or. There, there are there are no good <laughs> there resins. are no good resins. Alkyd would probably be the only resin that would approximate the same specifications as oil paint. So why do people put those resins into their mediums? What I, I always thought that it was to strengthen the paint film. In some cases, they can, but. Let's say the old masters used resins, but they used them sparingly. They used them in certain parts of the painting to achieve a specific effect. But now we use resins indiscriminately. So it's now we don't really paint. We don't really have oil paintings. We have oil resin paintings. And, and everything changes in regards to their behavior and how they're going to perform, the longevity of the paint. And so using resins changes the nature of the paint so that uh, it may make the paint more uh, susceptible to solvents. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful about that. And so alkyds, of course, like I said, probably the only real, uh, really hardening resin for an oil paint and can be used effectively in that way. And then the last point we just said is uh, avoid oiling out, um, if at all possible. Would you recommend retouch varnish just because it's so diluted if you need to see something that's sunken in or it's, you just I, your I, finger? It would be better to use oil instead of a retouch varnish because we're adding a resin again to the uh, to the paint layer. But isn't it so diluted? I mean, I thought I'm going to get hate whole, mail now from yeah. all the retouch varnish. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always thought that it's just such a diluted coat. Of, it is a diluted coat. And, and that it's basically harmless because it's so diluted. Right. But and, I mean, it's, it's effective. I mean, it's, it's, uh, the, the issues with it are, are greatly diminished because it is a diluted coat. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, simply, it's simply wise to keep the oil painting as simple as possible. Mm -hmm. And instead of involving other resins and other uh, uh, substances that alter the overall performance. And that's, that's why we made that. But, you know, that's the... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, 12 points. <laughs> you forgot 13. Paint with yes. love. <laughs> Paint with love, yes. Paint with love. What effects were... And hate. <laughs> with love and hate. There's a lot of self-loathing and, yeah. and hate. Um, what, uh, what effects... I'm curious, going back to the, the resins, you mentioned that the old masters used them sparingly for certain effects. What effects were they using? Such as fast drying. Uh, possibly, we don't really they know. Speed we don't, up drawing. Yeah. They will. They will hasten the drawing of, of the paint. Uh, but like you were mentioning, you you tell me. To, well, you didn't tell me, but you showed that you can use something like egg yolk to do that instead. Yeah. You can do a lot of different and things. And that's safer, right? You can do a lot of other things that uh, without the use of resins. There's mm -hmm. a lot just simply with oil or oil. You were saying another and, thing is in the media. I mean, in the paint itself you'd be better off using different oils as right. opposed to any sort of right. resin. Right, like, like a, a body, like bodied a heavy, or... A, a, a heavy body. Right, which oil. we call stand oil. And, uh, so what was the other one you were mentioning? Kettle? kettle a uh, kettle. It's just a diff different way of making or preparing a bodied the, oil. The same oil is yeah. just a different it's, preparation. Yeah, and different viscosity. So all with just oil, you could do the majority of the effects that you need to do with your brush mm -hmm. and the paint. Um, 
the other, the other possible reason for using a resin is to actually protect that particular pigment or isolate that pigment from other, and, and a good example of that would be verdigris. Verdigris was often, in oil, will often become uh, brown. Um, and uh, it, was it can be protected with a resin. So oh, that's, okay. that's a good function for a resin. That's um, interesting. Another function is to increase the refractive index of the paint. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and of course, we talked about all this optics and what that really means. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's essentially, it's, it's uh, increasing the uh, chroma of the color. It'll increase the, the saturation of the color right. generally. Yeah, I right. wanted to ask you, is it okay if I ask Ted some of these questions? Sure. Oh, yeah. All right. This, I want to just part of our fire, quiz. I want to fire <laughs> these off to you really quickly. All right. And then, uh, okay. Number one, uh, PVA resin is one of the best choices for sizing canvas or adhering canvas to panels. True or false? PVA, yes. True. False, stupid. <laughs> um, stretch Why? Can't don't worry about it. Stretch canvas bag. That's because he doesn't remember. He's got to review his notes. I'm sure he was. Yeah. We have a limited time. Stretch canvas backing, such as cardboard, should be pierced with holes to allow the canvas to breathe. I've heard that is true, but I'm going to say yeah, no. <laughs> it's false. You tried to false. It's false. <laughs> I'm so all looking at him. I'm looking at you. Because that allows moisture in. Exactly. Yeah. So you yeah. want to hope. So you were maybe learning. put the backing learning. on on a dry day, and right. then it's there. And you want to you want to buffer or limit the amount of exposure to moisture. Right. And you did mention and and you t again take uh, George's workshop for this. The idea of even having those like rubber, those rubber. Um, uh, um, Spacers. Like weather stripping so and weather things stripping. like that. Yeah. To, yeah. Really to helps isolate. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, the, the verso of the wood panels should not be coated or uh, covered to allow the wood to breathe. I'm going to say false. Yeah. False. Okay, yeah. so you're learning. Same principle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Braces. Well, and also you do want to do something to the back of the wood, right? So it doesn't become a bowl because as the, the front side is expanding, isn't that eventually going to, like, all those, I don't know, 14th, 15th century paintings on panels, the, the wood, it, it's like a convex mirror. Right, and that's because the wood warped. Right. It was mechanical failure. And then, of course, they did cradling after the fact. But they did in order to up. in order to bring it back into plane. Right. And but um, it's too late. It's too late. Yeah. Braces and cradles <laughs> should not be fastened to wood panels so as to restrict it from contracting it and That's expanding. Kind of a trick question. It is a trick question. I didn't even notice that that was a question. I thought you were making a statement. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my soapbox. <laughs> Next. <laughs> okay, next. <laughs> Excess fabric at the corners of stretch canvas should be A, trimmed off, B, folded and stapled to the stretcher bars, C, folded, not stapled, uh, uh, so as to allow the fabric to remain unrestrained. Uh, I'm going to say you want to fold it and staple it. Ding, 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 ding. Right one. Okay, good. <laughs> Again, we're just limiting movement and as much as possible. We're right? also redistributing all of the uh, stress and strain in the canvas uh, over a greater surface area. Ah. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more simply, you've got more fabric. <laughs> right. The paint layer of a canvas picture yellows to a greater extent than that of a wood panel picture. I actually think, I don't know if that's true. I think it is true because I've seen paintings on wood that seem, you know, like... No nothing. explanation, true or false. <laughs> I'm going to say, what was, uh, repeat the question, please. <laughs> uh, the paint layer of a canvas picture yellows to a greater extent than that of a wood I'm going to say picture. true. 
True. Right. Very, Very good. good. Ooh, Very good. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, paint bound with linseed oil is subject to greater shrinkage than that bound with walnut or poppy oil. Wow. Uh, it's kind of a trick question. Well, yeah, that was hard. That was hard for everybody. That was hard. True or false? I'm going to say false. That was a guess, and you got it right, but you totally guessed that. I, I did saw not it guess. In your I eyes. knew it. No. I saw it in your eyes. You okay. saw decisiveness and integrity in This is a trick question. This is the one I, got, I, I, I thought was difficult. Smooth grounds do not provide support to drying paint films, resulting in a more pronounced cracking. True That's or false? Interesting. I'll say false. I said false, and it's true. It's true. So you, smooth grounds actually are more dangerous? They, um, and we're, when we're talking about smooth grounds, we're talking about, let's say, high gloss, you know, a glossy type of finish. Oh, I thought you as were just talking to, about uh, double prime. <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to, let's say, uh, a matte uh, surface where there is, basically, it, a it has, there's, there's, more, there's more surface area. So right. it allows a greater, <clears throat> excuse me, a greater distribution of, of all the stresses and strain going on. Uh, okay, acrylic uh, dispersion, which just acrylic ground, mm-hmm. uh, expands and contracts. Gesso. As, don't say acrylic <laughs> gesso. Acrylic gesso <laughs> expands and contracts at significantly different rates from oil paints that uh, it can cause the overlying oil paint film to crack. I'm going to say false. true. False. Really? They're very similar. Oh, very similar. Acrylic ground is wow. a good ground. That's why they make very good grounds for They're oil paints. They're very good wow. grounds. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you do you don't like the term acrylic gesso, but you like the acrylic gesso. You, you bet. <laughs> good quality. Good quality. Good acrylic. quality. Yes, of course, that's very important too. Yes, because they're not all equal. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the optimum location on a stretcher bar to tack or staple that pesky canvas is on the edges or the back. I'm going to say the back, because the surface area, increasing the surface area. Exactly. Same principle. There you go. He did pretty well. Yes, he did very well. That just absolutely annoyed me. (laughs) That totally just annoyed me. I asked Tony not to give me the quiz, which is exactly why he gave me, because I didn't (laughs) want to be embarrassed and humiliated. And you did all right. You know, but it's very difficult, actually, because this is something that, you know, many, many people don't don't know. Or there's myths about it, and so. Well, I've been reading your posts, you know, from back on on, uh, uh, Graydon Parish's Mm -hmm. uh, Rational Mm -hmm. Painting site. That's where I think I first came across. Yeah, a lot yeah, of your, your yeah. stuff was on rational paint. I yeah, order gold leaf yeah. from you every now and then with the, uh, I use the oil. Uh, Size? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think you were supposed to teach me how to. Uh, oh, yeah, come over leaf. anytime. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bring more quizzes. I'll teach you how to uh, mull paint, too. I know how to do that. He doesn't know how to I do totally that. Know how to mull. He knows now. <laughs> I know how to do it really well now. I knew how to do it before. Yeah. Hey, George, I wanted to thank you a lot for coming. I've learned a ton in your um, workshops. I highly, highly uh, think everybody should take it. I think the inf- information is incredibly important, and I think uh, it's all out there, and I think we just need to learn it and sort of pass on the information and learn from each other. So you, uh, I, I thank you for that. And Tanya, thank you for coming. Thank you for yes. speaking, any, Tanya. Uh, any last <laughs> words, Tanya? Anything? No. <laughs> Nothing? Thank you. Thank you.
Yeah, same thank you. you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you so much, George. And I love natural pigments. I love Rubov paints. I, I, have, I, I have definitely both. recommend uh, natural pigments, too. I've, I've, I use a bunch of your stuff, and I, I really like it. So. Well, thank you. I thank got you your much. beginners. That's what's, I, I mean, I learned to paint, uh, to mix my own paints, to mull my own paints mm -hmm. in Italy, but I got your starter set, and I'm still working <laughs> with the, uh, the, it's like a small glass thing Plate, with yeah. the, what is it, something the, carbonate that you uh, Carborundum, yeah, yeah. Carborundum, yeah, and yeah. the. A, a tiny little muller and mm. I just I make you know just enough to paint with but yeah, yeah. the handling of that paint there's nothing better yeah. you control it I make it exactly as goopy or not goopy as I want I love this stuff <laughs> by the way if you do order from natural pigments uh, make sure you mention here's us some, uh, here's some you're going to give, give us a huge kickback every time that's they, right yeah, every yeah, time they yeah. mention suggested, suggested donation or Ted Minoff and Tony Serenai and even Jay Jay Braun. Jay Braun. Hey. On the so wheels of steel. You're going to give us uh, kickbacks. That's great. Anyway, uh, again, thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure I'm sure you'll be back. Yeah. Otherwise, we're coming you. to visit you in California. Very definitely. Because you yeah. said um, you're in wine country, and it's really pretty around. It is well. pretty. Yeah, next time we'll have to have uh, more exciting beverages. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should, yeah, good point. I think we can get Tanya on the mic. And then we can get <laughs> Definitely Tanya next time. A little, yeah, little, no vodka, a little vodka there. really fast. <laughs> I could see it from here. You get you get very vermilion. That would be a Chinese vermilion. It'd be Chinese vermilion because it is it's a little bit it's a little warmer than it is uh, uh, cool. Anyway, thank you, George. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. Oh, that was great.